the Psychedologist. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of The Psychedologist. In this episode, I interview an outstanding pioneer and leader and admirable person, in my opinion, Neil Marshall Goldsmith, PhD. Neil is a social psychologist, licensed psychotherapist, public speaker, and the author of a very popular book, Psychedelic Healing, The Promise of Entheogens for Psychotherapy and Spiritual Development. Dr. Goldsmith has extensive experience working with individuals seeking to fully benefit from and integrate the lessons gained during psychedelic experiences. He is a great dude. We have a great talk. We don't 100% see eye to eye, and that's what makes us really enjoy our conversations. So I have a few notes um, and a few explainers to give before we launch into the episode. Um, Basically, what you can expect to hear us talking about is differentiating between drugs, medicines, and sacraments, um, including, um, actually, Neil takes it a step forth to say, um, part of everyday life or just like uh, psychological maintenance or upkeep, so to speak. And uh, this conversation began after I told him I had just interviewed or just, excuse me, discussed um, the new psychedelic renaissance at my talk at Oregon Eclipse, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, I gave a talk at the Village Witches, and it was called A New Psychedelic Renaissance, Shifting Perspectives from Drugs to Medicines. So Neil and I ended up having this private conversation about uh, the ins and outs of such words, and I asked him if we could actually talk about it and have it on record. So that's what you're going to hear today. Um, We also talk about a little nomenclature with the psychedelic renaissance and is that really happening Uh, and then also the push and pull between a reductionist or scientific outlook and the spiritual perspective and if those can ever be reconciled so some words that you might hear in this episode today are first sacrament a sacrament is a religious ceremony or act or substance that is regarded as an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual divine grace So this could be, for the Catholic Church, it's the body and blood of Christ, the wine and the bread. Um, And in terms of psychedelics, you might have heard in my previous episode, LSD is considered by some the sacrament of the religion of the Grateful Dead, or the spirituality, or the, um, the, the, uh, you know, you listened to it, right? The Wizard of Monadnock, my second episode. Yeah, you know, you can help me out with this. Uh, Another word you might hear is non-duality, and this means not to, right, non-dua, not to, non-separation. It's the sense that basically all things are interconnected and not separate. Um, At the same time, they retain their individuality, and we can differentiate between them by uh, different qualities and appearances and actions that they may take. However, the the base understanding of non-duality is that nothing's actually separate. Duality, on the other hand, is an instance of opposition or contrast between two concepts or two aspects of something. So Neil talks about, as the therapist, when you're working with a couple, that duality is a special part of the healing process because it's recognizing my perspective different from my partner's perspective and um figuring out how with these two things we can still respect each other's autonomy and yet we can come to like a mutual place of understanding. So duality is, is very useful. You may also talk, uh, you may also hear us talk about ayahuasca. And if you've not, not sure what this is or you want to brush up, it's a mixture of 
two plants. And this is done in a traditional ceremony. It's been thousands of years that this practice has gone on, um, but it's reaching the mainstream culture and uh, the awareness of a lot of folks uh, who may never have heard of it. And a lot of people as such have participated in an ayahuasca ceremony. The brew is a mixture of a dimethyltryptamine or DMT containing plant with an MAOI or a plant containing MAOI, which means monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So these two things together are what when drank, when brewed together and drank in the ceremony, um, catalyze the mystical visionary waking dream, essentially. The dimethyltryptamine is a compound that is actually endogenous to the human brain. That means it occurs naturally. And it's also present in a lot of different trees and plants. And dimethyltryptamine, it has some research to show that it's more present at the moment of birth and the moment of death or a near-death experience, which explains the dreamlike state of the near-death experience. And uh, and also when we dream. I'd like to see better research done so I could more definitively say that that was true, but so far it's just some research and it's kind of fringe. Surprisingly, the pharmaceutical companies don't want to scoop up DMT and uh, do lots of expensive studies on that, probably because they couldn't make any money off of it because you can't make money off of these great things. Uh, and not that I even would hope for DMT to be commoditized at all. It's a sacred molecule, in my opinion. That, if you ingest it on its own, your body metabolizes it pretty rapidly, and there may not even be um, the visionary experience or just a few symptoms or a few side side effects or a, a mild um, trip, but not not the full DMT experience. So with the MAOI, oh, that is... Basically, it inhibits this enzyme from breaking down the DMT. So the DMT stays in the system longer and is therefore um, acting on the human body. So in the combination, um, when, when drank, it, it's the ayahuasca experience. That's knowing ayahuasca. So we discuss the concept of um, the hundreds of thousands, millions really, of plants in the rainforest and that the indigenous people knew to combine these two. And how did they know? The theory goes, the mushrooms were the ones that told them. And then we have a conversation about calling, you know, it told, like, do the mushrooms tell? Is it, do psychedelic substances communicate with humans? Is that what the psychedelic experience is? And then a bit about um, the ins and outs of that, such as that that's a very anthropomorphic way to look at things. Now, anthropomorphism is attributing human traits, emotions, or intentions, actions to non-human entities. So I actually did that today. I saw two birds and their mouths came close and I said, oh, would you look, those two birds are kissing. And really I was attributing a human characteristic to an animal. So this is considered to be an innate tendency of human psychology to anthropomorphize or to attribute like human traits to other um, other beings like plants or animals. At any rate, Neil says that rather the people who discerned that information of combining the MAOI with the DMT containing plant were tapped into a visionary consciousness where such information was accessible. So it's not that the mushrooms consciously were like, hey, like these people really should trip out like a lot. And so why don't you go mix this one with that one? He's saying, no, actually... 
Um, it's a greater intelligence, a greater awareness that was accessed in that psychedelic state. And, and from that, the people knew to make ayahuasca. So um, another thing we talk about, this is the last thing I'll say, is the psychedelic renaissance. And are we actually in a second psychedelic renaissance? I believe we are. Neil says it's not going to happen until things are legal, at least medically, and then later recreationally. I might go to say, though, that this is an early stage of it. I do think that there's a renaissance or a revolution going on in terms of consciousness in general, and psychedelics are a part of that. And I think we've already begun on the, on the revolution ride uh, or the renaissance ride. But that's up to you to decide. I hope that you enjoy this episode and check out my uh, outro when the interview ends because I have a few questions for discussion there that you might want to consider. Everyone, uh, Neil Marshall Goldsmith, PhD. Okay. Hi, Neil. Welcome to The Psychologist. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. It was a, a pleasure to be able to connect with you today and um, go back into what we initially started talking about, where um, I mentioned my presentation at Oregon Eclipse, a new psychedelic renaissance, shifting perspectives from drugs to medicines. And then you blew my mind with um, the sort of differentiations that that could be made, even beyond what I had considered in all the time I've thought about this presentation. So I was super stoked to hear your perspective on that. Well, you know, a, a different a different perspective. Sometimes it's very helpful, even though it's you know something that uh, you might have thought of, or um, sometimes you don't see it right away. So happy to help you in that regard. But I remember what I said was you said from drugs to medicine, and I said, well, what about from drugs to medicines to sacraments? Mm-hmm. Or um, I and I I think I had a fourth level after that. I can't remember in our conversation, but it was I think from drugs to medicines to sacraments to um, yes, to sacraments is a normal part of your life, not as a special, um, spiritual or religious thing that's separate from the mundane world, but kind of like looking at everything in every moment in your life as a sacrament or as a, cer- not a ceremony exactly, but as a, as a, um, as a connected, grounded, you know, whole perfect thing. Um, even the quote unquote mundane things that we do having to do with the world. Yeah. And, Oh, go ahead. Uh, continue. No, no, that's okay. I was going to say, I was going to ask if that is different than non-duality. Wow. Well, that's a huge question. I mean, even the words non-duality are just words. And so probably to capture what, what non-duality literally, you know, experientially is, um, you know, I don't know. Non-duality is interesting because, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot about duality in my, um, in my personal life, in my practice, in, observe, in, in observing, in my observations of the way people work, you know, especially because of my practice and stuff, that there's a lot of duality. And duality is really wonderful in a way, because once you see a duality, you realize, you know right away, that neither side of the duality is going to win, quote unquote, and that the solution or resolution of the duality, the transcendence really of the duality is an integral of those two extremes, not an average, um, but some third new thing that, that, that with a larger conceptual umbrella subsumes both of those halves and kind of like a magnet, you know, has a North and a South pole. But if you look at the magnet itself, you say, what's it called? You say, it's a magnet. And yes, it has North and South poles. So, um, you know, the larger whole, 
So I think a lot about that. And, you know, it comes up in my practice, as I say, in the form of, for example, couples come in and, you know, uh, there's a duality there. <clears throat> Maybe he's, you know, a, um, a, a, a aggressive or explosive alcoholic and, and she is a um, all-suffering uh, you know, a, a victim really trying to keep it together and stuff. And so, you know, you think, well, there's a duality right there, of course. And it's interesting because when people come in like that, frequently uh, they themselves and others might say, well, you know, obviously he's the monster and she's the victim. But of course, when the relationship goes on for a while, you have to realize that both parties are in it pretty much 50-50, which is another interesting thing about duality. But um, the transcendence of that duality is is the solution. So when I see duality, I always sort of smile in a way because it makes things so much easier that you're not blinded by one side or the other. You know, mm-hmm. the Arab-Israeli conflict is another example. There's so many dualities in life. So having said all of that then, um, you know, what about non-duality? Uh, it, it's that transcendent third thing. And the best symbol I think of for it, the best graphic really, is the yin-yang symbol, which has both the two halves, in addition to the two halves, have the two sides having stuff you know, from the opposite side in, in them, the circles. Um, and it's also a dynamic thing in the sense that it's moving, each piece moves into the other side. Um, but, of course, there's that big circle around the two halves of the yin-yang symbol. And that's the non-duality. So the, it, it, not to make things more complicated, but th- there seems to be a duality between non-duality and duality. <laughs> so that's as far as I'll take that one right here because I get a headache when I think about it too much. Oh, but, yeah, only that far? Oh, so shallow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's worth thinking about really and dwelling on because neither you know you don't want everything to be uni- unity and whole i mean you couldn't function really if you didn't have some kind of contrast or distinction or differentiation or categorization and yet of course you don't want that to be your whole life either the life of the world of duality the perception uh, the experience of a dual uh, approach to life you want to have that foundational transcendent non-dual um, part as well. So, you know, they, I think, I don't think that we want to transcend duality completely and never have duality. I think that's what makes, you know, let there be light. That's the difference between light and dark. Uh, that's what contrast and actually existence is all about, but it's grounded, founded in a, in a whole. So I like the both really in a way. Okay. So then, um, the, with the yin and yang, you know, there's, not necessarily a definitive boundary between one and the other. Like, how do we determine what's bald and what's not, or what's rich and what isn't? Must we do that? No, no. I, I, I might, <laughs> I might say that it, it, it has a fractal nature. That it's, it's a self-replicating system. The more zoomed in you get, the closer you get. The you see the pattern just as if you zoomed out and looked at it from afar or objectively, um, and. <clears throat> To bring it back to drugs, medicines, and sac... Well, I'll just finish this and then see where we want to take it. To bring it back to drugs, medicines, and sacraments, um, is there ever a hard line between them? Is there even a fine line? That's what I was getting at. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, not so much... You see, it's good to look at detail. Uh, Another analogy, another good example is the human body. So you have the heart, you have the lungs, you have the liver, and there are specialists, medical specialists in each of those organs, right? So there's a cardiologist, for example, only focuses on the heart, can't tell you much really, if anything, really about the liver, right? But, you know, and we can dissect the human body and take those organs out and and dissect them and, you know, observe their structure and understand their function. 
Of course, they don't function uh, individually, though. You, you know, you, they only function as a part of the whole. So the two are sort of integral together. The duality between duality and, and unity, right? So you have the duality between the individual organs of the body and the whole body. And that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm willing to love that that duality. So my issue as a, as a therapist really has to do more with um, with the, the sort of the locus of one's consciousness or the way one um, – it's almost like a resolving microscope where you turn this microscope goes up or down. You, in terms of its focus. And so, um, you know, I think of, um, most people come into me in this world, in the Western, in Western society, having had parents, you know, tell them how to be or what to be or how to do. Um, the, the people come into me mostly with lots of shoulds and lots of, um, I want to be this instead of that. You know, I want to, you know, I want to change. I want to get rid of this. Uh, I hate this part about me. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm an asshole. I'm fucked up. I need to change this. I need to, you know, be different. I need to get my act together. All of those shoulds and, and thoughts are, tend to be very analytical, you know, and how do I do that? Well, I'm going to work really hard on myself or I'm going to go to ceremonies. I'm going to go to, you know, shrinks. I'm going to, you know, somebody once came into me, a new client, and she said, you know, uh, doc, I don't know why I'm so fucked up. I take LSD every single weekend. <laughs> You know, and, you know, so there's a, there's a, a role for that kind of uh, experience. But, of course, you know, it's um, the, thinking that that uh, psychedelics that, that, you know, um, these these um, um, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to be I'm careful in what I want to call them, because I really I'm not sure I really want to call them medicines. And we'll get back to that question, I guess, in a second. Um, but you know, um, people who, th who think they're going to go to, go to group or ceremony or a doctor or psychedelics uh, a lot and then figure themselves out and fix it. That's the wrong desire in the first place, fixing yourself, changing, you know, the, the desire for change is the problem, not the mm. solution. Mm. Because, you know, if, if our parents had, had given us unconditional positive regard, then we would be fine with who we are right now. And even though we weren't our fullest person yet, it would be okay. But like a baby crawling is just as beautiful as a baby walking, you know, six months later. So we don't, we don't have to be fully attained in all of the things we want to do yet. We're okay just the way we are. And paradoxically, the less focused on doing and fixing and becoming and, and getting your act together you are, and the more accepting of the way you are right now, the more quickly you change and evolve and grow into the next stage. Okay. So, you know, trying really hard slows it down and accepting you for the way you are at stage one speeds you into stage two mm. much faster. And then that stage two might be more genuine and more in integrity with your values than um, the criticism of where we are. I think that those criticisms are voices that we are repeating. It, it's a loop of what we've heard from the outside, maybe that we're in, internalizing um, sure messages from the industrialized world from patriarchy from, from um, parents, colonization from well yes and from mothers and fathers more more you know like the, the the patriarchy and the industrial society those influences although they come through the parents as mediators of, of that context it's true so we do get that messages from the from the earliest stage but indirectly through the 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 the, the values and nature of our parents consciousness but 
the actual impact of that world doesn't come to us directly until later on, a few years later, when we're starting to, you know, venture out into the real world, even as toddlers, you know, as we start interacting with cars and other stuff like that. But as infants, as babies, as, as newborns, and then for the first couple of years of life or so, um, the, the ma- major influence is the family, uh, parents and um, siblings and things like that. The primary caregivers doesn't have to be parents per se, but the primary caregivers is the primary influence on people's, you know, personalities and issues later on uh, comes from those early days. And that mostly comes from parents generally. Right, right. I think that the humans that we interact with and learn from and our caretakers are ambassadors of that culture of consumerism or whatever that they don't even necessarily know that they're... Yes, that's, I, I said that actually, and I agree. It's absolutely, but it's a sort of a, a, a bit of an indirect uh, influence because it comes filtered through them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's powerful nonetheless. I, you know, I'm not saying it's not, but, but it's, it's important to know that even that influence comes through the parents in the early days. Um, because, and the parents themselves are, are artif- not artifacts, but are um, uh, the result of not just you know, societal influences, but of course their own psychology and their own parent parenting experience that they received. Yeah, so their trauma. You, know, you can't separate, right, you can't separate them. They're, 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 they're intertwined or, you know, the same thing in a way, really you can't separate them. But conceptually though, it's important to, I think, realize that the primary conduit for input to the child is the primary caregiver for those early, early, you know, impressionable years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ooh, I'd love to talk to you about psychedelics and attachment style sometime, but should we go back to the medicine conundrum? Wherever you want me to go. Hmm. The medicine conundrum. All right, let's talk about that briefly. Um, okay, medicine, um, you know, I, I've, ta- I've done ayahuasca ceremony uh, in the traditional um, South American style many times, and they use the word medicina. And medicine, I think, in the South American mindset, I I believe, is different really from the way we think of medicine here uh, in the North. The medicine, as we think of it here, is more of a a machine, really, an operant sort of tool, something that will, you know, A plus B equals C, something you take that will accomplish a certain outcome. And I think uh, medicine, and everything else, frankly, in, in in the Amazonian worldview, is a more integral worldview you're not so distinct like we have here with science as being the you know the 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 main religion i think science is you know the mechanistic world is imbued with with spiritual uh, forces uh, in the in the amazon amazonian worldview so when they say medicine i'm not sure they really think of it in exactly the same you know chemical machine mechanistic sort of way that we think of it and i think that's an important distinction because when we then use the word translated and use the word medicine up here in the north to refer to this stuff then we're get, we're calling up the whole um, um medical health a context or industry, if you will, or mindset of being sick and ill and, and then, you know, doing stuff in an operant way to change it. And I don't think that's really the ayahuasca mindset at all. Um, you know, although people will report, you know, the ayahuasca, uh, molecule even coming in and doing like a nano technology sort of scan of your whole body and fixing little parts of it. That's also very mechanistic in its own way. But, um, but nonetheless, that's, those are spiritual machines, if you will. Not, you know, it's not really, I don't think, the, um, uh, the molecules of, of ayahuasca. So I think their worldview is different. And I think that calling it medicine causes, is problems here in the, in the North. Because then, of course, we have a, dis- a duality again between spirituality 
and you know pharmacology or medicine or brain brain versus mind um and that's a distinction i i want to try to avoid i want to transcend that that duality uh between science and spirit because there's really only one universe science is filled with spirit like a la quantum mechanics and you know quarks and relativity and cosmology and spirituality is always embodied in a human animal you know so as far as we 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 we, we can ascertain or prove so you know if if spirituality is always embodied and if the material world is you know relativistic and quantum mechanical then aren't we really just looking at the same buzzing blooming reality through two different filters from two different perspectives you know not just scientists and and and, and religious people but um, or, um or the poets and painters and you know architects and uh everybody really makes meaning out of their lives yeah yeah i maybe though it, it needs to go in the opposite direction of what you're saying right you you said the western world um translating medicina as medicine it causes issue because it's not that um you know you're sick here's the treatment um it's not the the reductionist or the um cause and effect or the operant process well mm -hmm. perhaps then we should reconsider if the Western medical science is, in fact, medicinal. What do you mean by if it is medicinal? What well, if medicine is... So is medicine to, for getting well? Uh, in the West, it seems to be, yes. You're sick and you take medicine to get normal. Mm -hmm. and an, an herbalist may prescribe herbs to help their client get well right yeah well medicinal herbs. sort of yeah mm -hmm. absolutely so then if medicine aims to um to help the organism or the system get to a healthy place or a well place then the western medical system might not be most aptly called medicinal because it isn't aimed at, um, oh, I see. yeah, it isn't aimed at bringing people's immune system to the place where the immune system can take care of the thing or supplementing the systems that are already in place to um, well, bolster those to get the person better. Yes, in, in, in practical terms, perhaps Western medicine is not set up to heal in the way we're discussing. However, I think that the intention is to heal. I don't think that people, you know, are out to, you know, I don't know, make machine slaves of us or something like that. You know, the intention is to heal. It's just that we're immature in the West. You know, we we have because we took a big uh, detour, a big backtrack when we got involved with the uh, Cartesian duality, Rene Descartes. You know, the, and basically you can separate out and Protestantism too, the Protestant Revolution, where you 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 could charge interest, uh, but you know, as long as you went to church on Sunday you're okay so this this dualistic mechanistic uh, versus you know spiritual world where you know human beings can conquer you know the environment is really at the root so um I, but you know i think that uh, we're coming to the point now where we are realizing that that experiment um in uh, in in intellect in in mechanism uh in mastery um is actually turned into a evolutionary dead end um, and we can see that in the in the form of the perfect storm of climate change and overpopulation and topsoil depletion and Super water bugs. 
all sorts of things like that are, are showing that that experiment that multi you know multi millennial you know experiment with control like i say mastery of, of nature dualism um is not working and so now we're coming to an into a reintegration it's like you think of it almost like as a spiral uh where we start out at the bottom of the spiral you know let's say on a circle nine o'clock and we're going you know counterclockwise so we end up we we, we come around the spiral going to six o'clock to three o'clock at three o'clock we're halfway around the spiral we're halfway up and we're diametrically opposed to the beginning place the beginning place of course is being integrated into nature where we're happy and and whole but we die at 30 of an infection mm-hmm. so we develop our frontal lobes, our intellect, our science, our opposable thumbs, our visual acuity, and we master the world. And now here we are, halfway around that spiral, diametrically opposed to the natural person, you know, completely unnatural, but we live to 90, that's for sure. So do we come down the spiral, back down to the originating point, you know, into, into tribalism? I don't believe so. I think we continue around that spiral and continue powering through modernity post-modernity, the alienation of post-modernity, into a post-post-modernity, a reintegration where we're now fully around the spiral, back where we were, but one level up, with our eyes open, Buddhist style this time, having been through Cartesian duality, the split, and now having, with the reintroduction of psychedelics into Western society, having reunited that duality, like Rupert Sheldrake suggests. So that's the spiral of development over the course of the millennia, as I see it. Okay. Well, then when we discovered that chewing this herb or macerating it and putting it on a wound would take away symptoms that we didn't, that our ancestors didn't want, um, there, it seems to be that we would understand that the plant brought something, the plant did something that had an interaction with what our body was doing, and then it worked out favorably for humans. So people might hear that ayahuasca is a medicine and think, you know, this medicine that I take for my uh, lupus really hasn't helped me. Maybe ayahuasca will be a good medicine for my lupus. And you're saying, like, that's not the way to think about ayahuasca as a medicine. You can call it medicine. That's a great word for it, actually, really. But recognize that the model of how medicine works is different. Yes, it heals you. Yes, it makes you feel better. You know, all those things are the outcome. That's why we do it, of course. But the mechanism of doing it is very different. So in the West, we've isolated out the chemical material concrete processes. And we say, all right, well, you take this chemical, you know, ayahuasca, it's got DMT in it, and then dimethyltryptamine. And that acts as a serotonin, you know, agonist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives you this sort of brain interpretation of how that works. And that's, we've left out the spiritual foundations or under underpinnings of it so um so if you think of the tribal approach or the the earlier approach and the approach that we're now coming back around to as we redefine the world uh the universe science medicine healing all those things are being redefined now um as we as we become an integral society east and west together north and south together a transcendent of, du- of those dualities so the that earlier and now emergent model of how healing works which is not a, a detailed operant categorical thing although there is that component to it and you could you could spend time analyzing and doing science on those aspects of it but the primary operational model is one of unity of of the ground of one's being of soul 
soul, if you will. And by the way, I, I reappropriate the word soul from the religious people because I'm not religious at all. Um, and I spell it with a small s mm. to indicate that it's, the, it's, it's, it's not a supernatural thing. It's just the deepest part of our consciousness, of our existence, of our, our soul. I love that word. It's a great word. But I don't think of it in, in religious terms at all. So, you know, and in fact, that's an example of what I'm talking about here. So that, you know, we have the distinction between soul, you know, the primitive, scientific, you know, uh, religious, you know, tribal kind of view of animism, if you will. And then we've got science, you know, the modern, you know, stripped down, functional, descriptive, explanatory mode. And that doesn't work either. As I said, look at the perfect storm of, of global warming, etc. So what's the integral, the transcendent of those two things? Um, and it's basically, like I said, when you come around that spiral, having your eyes open, having gone through modernity, but yet re-embracing, um, the re-sacralizing uh, uh, nature and the world. That's, that's Rupert Sheldrake has a wonderful book called the, the re-sacralization of, of science and nature, I think it's called. Um, uh, and so he's talking about re-sacralizing it, not by going backward and beginning to be, and, and uh, returning to a sort of a animistic worldview alone, but looking at it as an animistic worldview that, um, that doesn't reject science. Mm. How can we and see science and spirituality as one thing coming into focus as one thing? The spirituality, the energy within science and the practical concrete foundations underlying spirituality. But you know, like I said, the healing model is one of holism, of a transcendence of, of detail, of analysis. So it's like, it's like a jazz musician, you know? They spend years, decades, mastering the scales, the notes, the use of the machine itself, the me mechanistic, technical part. And then they play jazz. And that jazz comes from the heart. But they couldn't play that jazz if they hadn't mastered the technical aspects, the mechanical aspects of the instrument. So again, I don't, I, I think it's both have to be, the, the distinction between spirituality and, and Western science it needs to be transcended. You can't reject Western science, in my opinion. Um, it would be foolish to try to do so, and it would be less true to our to who we are and, and what we are. Okay, sure. Yeah, I I agree. I do agree with you. I I like the neuroimaging of um, the brain on different substances and in different settings. I think that it's useful information, but it's what we do with the information that will determine the, the outcome of if humanity transcends yeah, exactly. the duality. That's mm. why we need to re-embrace the, the, the foundation, the unity. We need to take spirituality and not, you know, the scientists not dismiss it as mumbo jumbo, but to recognize that it's an actual real part, a foundational part of the universe and the way we live in it. So yes, exactly. And you know, what we've done through the Cartesian split is allowed ourselves to run amok with science and technical stuff, using it in a way that's not grounded in this larger, deeper worldview of soul and unity and universe. And that's why we're screwing up, you know? So of course, that's exactly my point, is that um, you need to have sort of a foundation, a context, a grounding um, of this holistic worldview. And then yes, you can go off into detail. It's sort of like the way tribal peoples would, um, you know, when they needed to, to, uh, to cut down a tree for wood, you know, apocryphally, they would go into the woods, find a tree and pray to it and connect with it. 
recognize the foundational unity in there and then chop down just one tree. Yeah. Whereas we, without the context, chop down all the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that even in the, there may be an awareness in the subconscious of which tree it would make more sense to take. And so praying or asking permission of the plant or the tree to take from it or to, to take its life um, perhaps even allows for some subconscious communication. Because in, in permaculture, we learned about um, like lo- looking at a plant and if you're going to harvest something from it, ask permission. And sometimes you don't, I, I would wonder, wh- what is going on when I don't feel like I have permission? Uh, when I mm-hmm. just decide not to take that one? Um, where did that information come well, from? Know, I would think about that a lot. I don't think it's, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that's an interesting process. I wouldn't call it subconscious, but I know exactly what you mean. You know, there's a wonderful book called Visionary Plant Consciousness, edited by uh, my friend J.P. Harpignes. And um, it talks about, you know, and there's another example. It, it talks about the consciousness of, of the jungle, of the net net intelligence of all the energies of all the plants and all the animals in the jungle being sort of a, 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 a consciousness. Another example is like I think it was Jeremy Norby when asked when he he reports that when he asked the natives the tribal peoples how did you know to mix um, uh, to make uh, ayahuasca to the mushrooms the told him the mushrooms told him told them now you know when people say that. Um, you know, when I, I make this point in a talk, people generally chuckle because it's so silly, you know, like, and it's funny because you learned how to take this one drug by taking another drug. All right, fine. But wait a minute. How would it be? I mean, these people are not lying and the tribal peoples are not primitive. They're not childlike. Their intelligence, their brains are identical to ours. Their sophistication is identical to ours. So when they say the mushrooms told us, let's for a moment do a thought experiment and try to say, well, what if the mushrooms literally actually did tell them? What would that, what kind of world would that be? And how would that actually work? So, of course, it's not like there's like this fanciful Disney mushroom hopping up and down on your shoulder saying, take this and take that and put them together. You know, it's not like the mushrooms told you that way. Well, how would the mushrooms have actually told them? In well, pictures. A, well, perhaps yes, but I don't believe it that 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 I don't believe that to be the case. In other words, I don't think that there's a mushroom spirit or entity or animism that then consciously tries to impart this information to us humans. I don't think of it that way. I think there's a broad, diffuse, visionary plant consciousness, so to speak, and that it's that net, um, um, uh, not spectrum, but but it's almost like three dimensional. It's like an ocean of sea, a, a sea of energy and 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 process and plants and animals and i think that holistic consciousness that's not a specific mushroom entity giving a specific message to a specific human but rather a sea of knowledge of consciousness into which we um come in to, to which we come in contact with that we become one with really that we reunite with because we're always part of that field that consciousness field and that's done more effectively on psychedelics on mushrooms so when you're in that mushroom state then you're receptive to the whole truth of the buzzing blooming reality rather than getting a specific message from a specific entity or plant which to me is so incredibly anthropomorphic it's it's not likely to be be the way things are working 
Yeah, that was my um, experience of learning to listen to um, to plants that I eat and drink and decoct um, instead of waiting as a human and listening as a human. It's it's listening with the openness of a, a, a processing organism or an organism that can perceive stimuli. Um, and a lot of the visions that I had in ayahuasca didn't make any sense until I stopped trying to interpret them as a human would <laughs> interpret yes. them as, just as a being. Yes. Um, earlier I was thinking about, I was thinking about transgender and queer stuff and how this plays in. Would you, do you see any, um, interlap with or overlap with, um, the the duality and and trying to bring spirit back in um at science just going hog wild um and losing the connection to spirit and how does that play in with like queer issues well i mean i think that the more the most important part of us is our our consciousness our essence the part that's transpersonal that's connected to the rest of us and the deepest part of us that called the soul um and so you know that gets manifest then through behaviors, through personality, through actions, and through body, through, through your physical body as well. So, you know, for me, I really, I think the way you express yourself, whether you're a scientist or an artist, or whether you're gay or straight, you know, is, is a, a sort of a material manifestation of your essence. So my view on that would be really for us all to get in touch with our essence, to re- um, embrace or re-identify with our deepest soul, our deepest essence. And then how that expresses itself, you know, the healthier and the happier and the, 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 the more loved we are, the more positive and health, healthy and, you know, healthy in the sense of for the planet, you know, that our behavior, our expression is going to be. So whatever your sexual orientation or whatever your career for that matter, not to compare, you know, equate the two, of course, but whatever detail you have in your life um, is going to be played out better if you're in touch with yourself, if you're feeling, you know, comfortable in your own skin, if you're in a loving environment. And uh, so, I mean, that would be my first take on that question, I guess. Yeah. Nice. Hmm. Do you think that the Icaros are sounds of the plants? Do you think that it that they stimulate? So the Icaros are the the chants and the singing that goes along with certain um, types of ayahuasca ceremony, where the shaman or the medicine person may, or the ayahuascaro may may chant this to the person, just for anyone listening. So Neil, what do you what do you think about Icaros? What's going on there? Well, look, I'm going to tell you something you're probably not going to like. Um, uh, Icaros, I find distracting. And here's why. Um, I know that's, that sounds terrible, but I, I have, uh, I have, I've been to ayahuasca ceremony many times, and I have the utmost complete respect for what's being done in ayahuasca ceremony. And not only that, for the individual, but also the significant and very helpful role that ayahuasca ceremonies play in the reintroduction, or I should say re-reintroduction of psychedelics into Western society. Uh, it's a very gentle, loving, spiritual context 
very safe, relatively safe for people, and lots of love, lots of support. It's a really wonderful cultural tool for reintroducing psychedelics. I say re-reintroducing because, of course, you know, they were uh, reintroduced in the 60s, and now they're being re-reintroduced. Exactly. Um, so, uh, um, having said that, though, um, I, I personally, when I first was... Uh, uh, invited, asked to participate in an ayahuasca ceremony, I, 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 I didn't want to do it exactly because the idea of being with tripping with a bunch of strangers and especially with the purging sounds and things like that, I thought it was not going to, you know, be something I wanted to do. Ultimately, I did it and uh, found it very, very valuable. And the fact that I was with, you know, strangers was irrelevant. The fact that people were purging was irrelevant to me. The fact that I was purging was not irrelevant, but beautiful. And so um, all of those things that I sort of feared or thought wouldn't work for me were not the issue. <clears throat> and I found, I, you know, ayahuasca ceremony is very valuable. However, um, my approach to psychedelics tends to be very introspective, tends to be going down to that ground of my being, to the soul. Um, I tend to trip alone. Um, and, uh, you know, with, um, uh, you know, in the fetal position under the covers. Uh, crying, going inside, going to the ground of my being. That's, I'm a psychologist, you know, that tends to be my process more or less. <laughs> so, it can be messy. It's very, you know, it's messy and beautiful. And, you know, I, it's usually mushrooms. And, you know, I know at the beginning that it's going to be an ordeal. And sometimes I stare at my palm, you know, at the, at the, at the ground mushrooms in my palm saying, do I really want to do this? Do I really? And then when I do it, I know I, I, through experience, I know that I'm going to um, be grateful, that I'm going to value that experience more than pretty much anything. And so I, I you know, that's that's why I end up doing it. So with that approach of going inside um, and and going under the cover, so to speak, what happens with ayahuasca ceremony is that you know I'll tend to be doing that. I'll be going deep, deep inside, and then all of a sudden I will hear a, a rattle over my head. Or, and I will come up from my depths and open my eyes and see the shaman. And I will be, I love the shaman. So, you know, it's not, I'm, I, I'm happy to commune and to work with the shaman at that point. But personally, you know, I would rather have more of a Zen experience, an inner, empty, you know, undifferentiated type experience. And the Icaros I find to be, um, at, at, at I used to find them to be like a, almost like a lifeline that was very helpful to keep connected. But after a while, I, I did, did begin to find that, that, that context a little bit distracting. Maybe if I were, if it were a tribal environment and I was a part of the tribe and the whole tribe was doing it and we were all related and, you know, it would be a very different thing for me, but it, it's just, you know, so that's my, that's my, um, my personal experience with the Icaros. I have great respect for them and what they do and how they hold space for people in a way I, I respect it very much but you know for whatever reason personally i'm not into that right now in my development mm. yeah i <clears throat> interviewed a panel of women at psychedelic science um who had been recipients of cosmic sisters psychedelic feminism grants and they oh, had, wonderful. yeah they had gone down to peru to sit in a series of traditional ceremonies and uh, mm -hmm. Selma, do you know Dr. Selma Holden in I do. Maine? She's great. Um, she'd been trained as a classical musician and found the Icaros dissonant and uh, uh -huh. excruciating at times. Oh. <laughs> uh, 
um, and and then and then came around, came out on the other side of it, and actually I appreciated the the sounds of the, that the human voice made, and um, she could say it better than I. But um, I've I've thought a lot about the way for me that the Icaros make they make the ayahuasca dance inside, and I know that others mm-hmm. have said this mm-hmm. that it's too it's singing to the plant so that the plant um, does does the work you know, comes to, to life in this other way. Um, kind of like a snake charmer. Uh, I have the image uh-huh. of a snake charmer working uh-huh. with the snake. That's but, a good image because of um, um, uh, Kundalini. It, it uses mm-hmm. the, un, the coiled snake, and part of that process is to rise it up through you to uncoil that snake. Oh, perfect. Well, Random Rav, one of the um, more prominent DJs that was playing at Oregon Eclipse, he has a new album and did an interview. The album's called Formless Edge. And he did this interview speaking about psychedelics and music. And uh, now with technology, we can make almost any sound that's possible for humans to hear. It can be made and it can be put into a song. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, it's, I think a, that, it's a space we've never, we haven't been in before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A formless Edge that we're at, perhaps. Wow, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I like the, I like to think about the Icaros and that when ayahuasca traditions, uh, were introduced and I, I want to ask that as a follow-up question, but when, when ayahuasca sec, um, ceremony was introduced or people began working with that medicine, that plant, um, you mean originally like in the, in the 1930s and stuff? Oh, well, no. Like when, when tribal peoples More, first began. Oh, right. Which is like thousands well, of... Yeah, well, probably something like that. But, you know, there's no record of that. But, yeah, probably. But w- the ayahuasca ceremony, as it's, as it's practiced today through the UDV and the Santa Daimi, those are syncretic religions. Those uh, incorporate uh, tribal elements and uh, Christian elements. And that um, ayahuasca, the, the ayahuasca ceremony that most of us experience, even the, you know, the tribal one, um, is a syncretic and Christian uh, mix so that didn't start until the um, you know early twentieth century, right? Maestro Irino, right? The rubber tapper. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So that then evolved into that syncretic you know mix of of, of tribal and Christian. So, but yes, ayahuasca as a plant. Your your question really was about when the plant was first started being used, and that certainly was tribal and, and predated the that the twentieth century. So, sorry, I interrupted you. What was your what was your point or question about that? What came first, the Icaros or the ayahuasca? And you know, are the were the Icaros? Because <laughs> that's a very quite a visionary uh, catalyzer the, too. The mush. You have to ask the mushrooms. <laughs> oh my gosh! Will you ask them too? Let's see the what they say. The mushrooms will tell you. <laughs> the mushrooms will tell you. No, I mean my my quick answer to that is that uh, probably co-evolved. I mean, and do we really want to separate ayahuasca from the Icaros in a way? Because they're certainly more unified than separated in in practice in the, in the ceremony itself so you know like i'm not a big i'm not the world's greatest expert on this topic either and um obviously the person uh, you need to ask about that is the person who wrote uh the the you know um uh singing to the plants um and and that would be steve Beyer. you you're familiar with with him i assume stephen Beyer. nope uh, B-E-Y-E-R. He wrote an actual thick book. He's a spectacular scholar. 
and he's a, if, if I remember correctly, he's an attorney as well as an anthropologist, and he spent decades, you know, studying um, the tribal peoples. And he wrote this spectacular book called Singing to the Plants, um, subtitled A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen with a PH, Bayer, B E Y E R. Um, it's the definitive book, it's spectacular. Uh, work of scholarship and insight. So I recommend that to you. Fantastic. Do you ever think about writing another book? I think about it too much. Yes, I think about it all the time. It's too much thinking and not enough writing is going on, actually. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I've got a a couple more books in me. I want to do a book. uh, One of the parts of of psychedelic healing that was so popular, that was most perhaps popular or well-received, was the the section on um, my concept of psychology. Um, and psychology is just the word psychology spelt with the E in it from psyche, you know, added back in because of course the root of the word psychology is psyche and ology and ology is the study of, of course, but psyche is translated as mind. So psychology becomes the study of mind, but psyche doesn't, you know, it's a Greek word. It doesn't really mean mind except in the very, very broadest Hindu sense of mind as consciousness. What psyche really means is soul which is a better word than mind because we associate mind with the intellect and soul is the more broader self. So we really ought to say psychology is the study of the soul or the essence of us, the deepest, deepest part of us. And that's how psychology began, you know, and we became more and more scientific in the late, you know, um, uh, 19th century, starting laboratories in experimental psychology and became more scientific, more medical in a way. And we lost our roots in, in the spirit, kind of like, you know, going into the mechanistic society of, of Western civilization, lost the tribal roots. And so what I want to do is re, um, reclaim psyche as a word and soul as a word, as a concept in psychology. I want to reclaim the foundation of psychology. And psychedelics, of course, help do that because that's what they show us. And psychedelics, by the way, of course, has the same root word, psyche. But it's psyche delos, right? And delos is the Greek word to to manifest or give, you know, as the root in the word deliver, delos, right? Mm. So psyche delos, the, the, you know, my, and it's translated as mind manifesting. But of course, it's not mind, it's soul. It's soul manifesting. Now, let's spell that word soul with a small s. Or you can spell it with a big s if you want to, uh, to indicate that it's really, you know, foundational. But let's not call it religious. Mm. Why not? Well, because religion is the enemy of spirituality. Religion is the opposite of spirituality. They, they, they do a good job of painting themselves as spirituality, and sometimes, I guess, there's some spirituality in religion. But primarily, sp- religion is an institution, a sociological institution, that is antithetical to the direct experience of, of, of spirit, uh, of essence. Um, you know, it's, you know, ever since Christ Jesus died, you know, the disciples made a church and that's not Jesus. Um, and, and onward and onward, all the religions are like that, I think. So, um, for me, religion is an arm of the state. So here's the metaphor for that. Let's say you're a shamanic, um, tribal, uh, 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 group in, let's say, um, Europe, you know, like, you know, 2000 years ago. And so the Holy Roman Empire, you know, sweeps down or, or swoops down or, or some tribal warlord, you know, who's now got fire and steel and horses and comes to your, your, your tribe and says to the shaman, okay, listen, I want you to become my priest. I'm going to give you 
marble edifices, stained glass, rubies, silk, and all the wonderful things of, of, of a priest. Um, and all you have to do is tell your people to serve in my wars and pay my taxes. And that if they die in the war, that their reward will come later in the afterlife. And the shaman says, uh, I'm a plant-based uh, visionary practitioner. That would be, you know, ridiculous. I, it's not the way I see things. I would never tell my people to fight in your wars. Uh, you know, I will never do that. And so the tribal, the, um, the warlord says, okay, off with your head. And oh, the head goes, this is like Game of Thrones. It's like Game of Thrones. So the head goes rolling down the hill. Now he turns to the assistant shaman and he says, all right, you know, you want to be my priest? Uh, and the assistant shaman says, huh, gold, rubies, emeralds, stained glass, marble, or off with my head. Emeralds, rubies, or off with my head. All right, man, I'm your man. Mm -hmm. And so he gets, so the power of spirituality, the power of that experience of essence, of, of, of God, of, of perfection, that incredible power is co-opted by the forces of mechanization, of government. And that's religion. So religion to me is a, is a control mechanism. It's an arm of the state. It's the co-optation of spirituality. And it's what we do in the West, unfortunately. You know, we, 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 we mine coal into iron, into steel. We extract, you know, we make grapes into wine, into vodka, so to speak. We take, you know, opium into morphine, into heroin. We're so good at extracting out the active ingredient because we're so mechanistically talented, analytically talented, that we lose sight of the, of the context of the whole. Do you think that the psilocybin studies should be working with mushrooms instead of a lab-derived chemical? No, I don't actually. I, because um, I, I think right now the studies are, are, are perfect. Mm -hmm. Not that they're ultimately completely conceptually perfect, like we could think of them as being better, of course. But for the political climate, for the, the mechanistic uh, approval of drugs environment and the regulatory environment, um, the, the, all the, 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 the society we're in, you know, we're in America, the, all the structures are already in place. So what they're doing is they're making their tests in a very, in the most approvable way possible, designing their research in the most approvable way possible. So instead of having a, a mushroom that has, you know, dozens or hundreds of psychoactive alkaloids, they use just one of those alkaloids, psilocybin. Um, you know, cannabis has over a hundred psychoactive alkaloids. Uh, so you can, you know, so they do that. They simplify it. It's replicable. It's reliable. It's testable. Excuse me. It's pure. So the government's happy. Now, what do they do? What else do they do? That's not real, not realistic. Okay. They have male, female teams doing the, now that's a great idea, by the way. I think that's really beautiful. However, it's unwieldy, it's expensive, and it's unlikely in actual practice to be the way psychedelic therapy is conducted, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years from now when everything gets, you know, fairly well integrated. A male-female team or a two-person yeah. team? Even a two-person team, right. Or the male-female and the two-person team. Both of those things will probably go away for the most part. And the psychedelic therapy will probably be done by an individual practitioner would be my guess. It's, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but it just seems that that's possible. I, I don't even want to say for sure, but that's an example of something that may not last. Another example is um, music. 
we talked about Icarus before. I, I meant to mention this too. You know, there's a soundtrack that the psilocybin research projects use. It's about six or eight hours long and it goes, starts out slow, builds eventually after several hours to a crescendo that's then resolved in the final, you know, hour or two of the music. Now, I don't listen to music when I'm tripping. I don't, I don't, and I don't think ultimately that that's going to be such a great idea um, for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's manipulative in the sense or controlling um, that it, 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 it's almost like, um, like insulting in a way that we're going to decide where your mind is going to go emotionally by putting certain music into your, into your ears. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about Icarus really so much now. I'm talking more about the Western approach to, you know, mechanistically having a tape of music. Um, and uh, what if also, what if your timing is, what if the crescendo happens at six hours, but I'm not crescendoing until six and a half? Well, I think that uh, the sounds we associate with a crescendo might be entirely different when someone's in an altered state of consciousness. So you can have your crescendo and the music may not be what the consensus reality would name a crescendo, but it can still sound I, like a crescendo. I agree. I agree. But if, you, if, the, if the people who created the playlist have in their minds mm-hmm. the idea of a crescendo at a certain hour, it's certainly true that an individual can take that music and be beautiful with it in so many different ways and have their crescendo regardless. However, in, in a conscious sort of mechanistic matching sense, at least not, that's not deterministic. It's not going to determine it with, you know, like written in stone, but it tends to influence it. It's, it's out of sync. It mm-hmm. would be out of sync. And it would, so, so that's another example. I don't want to get into a big defense or, or attack of, of that specifically. And again, it's not about Icarus, uh, which have a different character to them exactly, a different mm-hmm. purpose to, uh, different intentionality. So, but, but the playlist is another example. Another example of how things are going to change probably is that the research projects have, you know, I'm going to generalize, you know, three prior sessions, three experimental sessions, placebo or real, uh, and then three follow-up sessions. And then availability afterward for further follow-up if necessary. Now, that's not exactly how it's done. But generally speaking, that's kind of the model. All right, fine. But, you know, and why do they do that? They do it to get approved because it has to be a controlled setting and a laboratory-type setting where the variables are very clearly laid out and, and replicable so the government can feel comfortable that this is a real finding. Okay, so once these things get uh, rescheduled in the next five or seven years or so, and once they're rescheduled, then they can be um, prescribed by physicians off-label. So in other words, if, if, if psilocybin is approved for end-of-life anxiety, and it gets rescheduled from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, then a physician can give it for other reasons. It doesn't have to be for end-of-life anxiety. So, and by the way, we talk about the, um, we talk about the psychedelic renaissance um, that's happening now. But frankly, the psychedelic renaissance doesn't really start until these substances are rescheduled and available for prescription off-label. But in any event, once that the real practice comes into play, um, it's highly unlikely that you're going to have a practitioner who does three pre, three sessions, and three post. More likely, it's going to be, you know, you're a psychotherapist. You've been seeing a client for months. You both agree that it's a helpful and appropriate thing to do a psychedelic treatment. You, the therapist, you know, work with the client during those that session. Um, you then continue your psychotherapy afterward for months on end afterward. You know, not forever, of course, but, you know, comes to a close. But in other words, it's an ongoing process into which psychedelics are introduced rather than a specified 3-3-3 kind of setup. 
That's not the way it's going to work. But that's the way it's got to be set up and researched in order for it to be approvable by the government. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it may um, be better indicated for people to sit in groups with substance like um that's a very good point yeah. there's the first lsd study in in a generation was done by peter gasser in switzerland and that was a group therapy with lsd by the way i can't imagine being a therapist with like you know six or ten people tripping their their balls on, on lsd it'd be like herding cats it would be so <laughs> interesting you know i'm not sure that i'm up for that but god bless peter gasser for trying it but you're right there's another way that it may it may change so ultimately then you know what do i think of the way it's it's set up i think it's fine for now because what my goal, in terms of a, a booster of the research, really, is to change society. It's, it's like subversive in a way. Like some people think, I, I, I have friends on Facebook in particular who feel that, you know, psychedelics are sort of a conspiracy of the elite, of the CIA and the elite to sort of control us or distract the, the, the um, you know, the younger generation or the, the, the liberals or what have you to distract with drugs and, and pretty colors and, you know, shiny objects and stuff like that. And I, I think that perhaps some people think that it's possible that some people in the CIA feel that in some ways. I don't think so, perhaps really, but it's certainly conceivable. But if they, if that's true, they are going to have the biggest shock because psychedelics are subversive. And regardless of what you think, you know, as a government, you think you're going to use psychedelics to, you know, calm the masses or something. Ultimately, that psychedelic um, renaissance is going to infiltrate every aspect of society, every aspect of government, uh, open up, uh, you know, make beautiful, bring us back to our soul in so many different activities that if anybody thinks they're going to use it as a control mechanism to enhance, you know, corporate society, I think they're going to be very, very, very surprised. Yeah. Oh, Neil, thank you for being available for this conversation. You're very, very welcome. It's fun to talk with you about these things. You have a slightly different perspective from mine, which I really enjoyed, um, you know, working, you know, engaging in. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. W will I see you at Horizons this year? Well, all you got to do is look on stage because I'm the MC. Mm. So um, you, I, I'm the speaker curator and the uh, host so you will definitely see me at horizons it's by the way horizonsnyc.org it's going to be columbus day weekend october 6th through 8th thank you for mentioning it by the way and giving me the opportunity to to remind people and um our lineup uh will be up in the next uh within the next week right after labor day we'll we'll, we'll release our lineup but it's another stellar lineup you will not be disappointed i promise Cool. What are those like little hints that people give when a new show leaks? Do you do you have any leaks or? Um... Well, let me see. Let me actually. I'm at my machine. Let me go over to the the list real quick and see what I can what, what I can share with you. Um, oh my gosh. Well, I'll, I'll just give you a couple um, because I, I don't want to really spill the beans. I will tell you that Stacy Schaefer, who's a, a professor emeritus, um, has been studying peyote all her life, she'll be there speaking. Um, I'm talk thinking of people who, you know, um, Deborah Gonzalez is gonna be there talking about the therapeutic potential of altered states of consciousness and the grieving process. Mm. Uh, there's gonna be, um, Nick Powers is gonna be there to talk about uh, black masks, rainbow bodies, race and psychedelics. Nice, very good. Uh, and the last one I'll tell you about is, is Mendel Kalin, who's gonna be talking about music in psychedelic therapy since we've been talking about that today a bit.
So that's just a, a few. Um, we we have it's all uh, plenary sessions, no concurrent. So we really only have about a dozen speakers each year. But uh, there's a handful of them for you. Thank you so much. And where can people find you if they're interested to see more about what you do? Well, you can just Google me, really. But um, uh, my website is uh, Neil N E A L Goldsmith dot com. Friend me on Facebook. It's almost better in a sense because I'm I spend a lot of times time posting stuff and announcing my my upcoming talks on Facebook, and you can find me there as Neil N E A L Marshall is my middle name Goldsmith because there was already a Neil Goldsmith on Facebook. Ah, the nerve! <laughs> right, incredible. You're the so, only yeah, one I thank- know. Well, you were so nice and such a nice time talking with you. And um, let's do it again sometime next year or so. We'll have a part two or something. It's a date. I'll see you in NYC. Looking forward to that. Thanks again for inviting me to your podcast. All right. Bye-bye, Neil. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Neil Goldsmith. if you've got a Tinder date coming up or a dinner with your grandparents or maybe you're going to be talking to some children, here are some discussion questions that might prove uh, stimulating and engaging to go into uh, with anybody or even just to ponder on your own. So in this episode, we asked, what transcends science and animism or spirituality? How can we come to a whole perspective that encompasses both? Okay, so I, I think... This question is important because science has done so well at getting down to the molecular level functioning of so many different processes, but we've lost the um, we've lost the pulse on the the unnameable or the the life forces that um, that animate um, these processes, such as life. Okay, we can look at from conception to to death, but um, science doesn't encompass what it is to be human, and an animism or spirituality can get at that. But could we potentially see through both? And how can you do that? And what steps could science take? What steps could spirituality take to more encompass the other in its investigations? So another question Uh, In relation to the non-duality of drugs, medicines, sacraments, as in that something could be multiple ones of those at the same time, could be a drug and a sacrament at the same time, or something could be taken as a sacrament, and that is medicinal, or that helps the person get well, by my definition. Or some some drug could be taken recreationally uh, without any consciousness whatsoever, and then that could be a a holy or a medicinal experience. So in terms of that non-duality, what individual qualities distinguish each in the various contexts or intentions of use? What makes a drug a drug? What makes a medicine a medicine, a sacrament? What makes it that? The example that comes to mind for me is my yoga practice. In that, I began yoga as a recreation slash weight loss tool and also just something that I was able to enjoy for free because it was at a place where I was teaching and my friend was teaching the class so I could go without any cost to myself. And it was a good Saturday morning activity to get a little exercise. That was really it. Improve my flexibility for dancing. Um, And now my yoga practice has taken on this completely spiritual and 
sacramental aspect. Uh, I don't think about weight loss or exercise when I do yoga, although those things may be products of it. Uh, I also do yoga recreationally. I do it for fun. I, it's fun. It feels good. So something like that is um, what re- re- resonates for me. Okay. Uh, now, <clears throat> this is a this one takes a bit of explanation to get down to the question, um, but s- sort of related to question one. Since Cartesian duality became the cornerstone of scientific inquiry, animism often gets left behind, and in my opinion, this is to the detriment of the true seeker of knowledge, who knows that you cannot separate the two in order to tr- if you want to truly understand the whole thing. You need both. So you may have to take an isolated look at some phenomena or develop a skill that is purely mechanistic, such as learning to look through a telescope um, in order to understand the cosmos. Or as Neil said, um, the jazz musician, you have to master the instrument, and, but then the, the passion can play through you. You know, the, the spirit of the music can come through. Um, but ultimately, the intention is to have vision which utilizes both awareness, the science and the spirit sense. That's the intention on my end anyway, or that's what I want you to consider, that we could do that. And, well, this idea led me to think about the LGBTQIA movement and how neuroscience and genetics uh, can support the legitimacy of what queer people were asking for and queer supporters in the political movement. Equal rights, no discrimination. Now, um, would it have been as effective politically to call in the heart component of it or the spiritual component, such as to say, why shouldn't this be legal? I love my partner. They, are, they have the same sex organs as me. You really don't want us to be able to have the same rights? Um, so speaking about duality made me think of this concern because we still use the sciences to defend a case for why something should or shouldn't be okay. Um, but isn't it always people's personal experiences that are what uh, affect our opinions more than anything? Um, yeah, we like to have the science behind what we're saying, but what really wins a person's heart is hearing a story. Uh, and I'll thank Lex, Lex from Symposia, um, Lex Pelger, for that, <clears throat> for first turning me on to that, that, that it is the people's stories. Anyway, changing minds is extremely complex, and I often think about queer and trans rights now alongside the rights of people who take psychedelic substances and um, how in both of those cases, a lot of the public is content to have an opinion without actually engaging in learning more about what they're saying should be banned. Um, I also think about the implications of what they're condemning. So in the case of psychedelics, someone who says that they should be illegal especially naturally occurring plants that contain psychedelic substances, or even cannabis, let's say. Um, Some of these substances are already endogenous to the brain. We have a cannabinoid system in our brain. um, And a lot of these substances are not lethal at any sort of accessible dose. They pose low or no risk to the body in their use. And with proper guidance and support, they can be very useful for personal growth and resolution of trauma. Uh, changing harmful behavior patterns. So it strikes me as awfully similar to someone who says that two people shouldn't be able to be married because of the shape of their genitals or 
that a person shouldn't be allowed to use a bathroom because of the way that they identify or present themselves. Uh, these two, these two, well, these two situations, I think, have a lot of parallels. And I hope that in this new age that we're entering with technology and with a lot of polarity in the political system, that um, people's stories and um, and compassion can can affect the minds of the public more so than the negative propaganda that's um, behind. To me, it's undoubtedly what is behind um, such opinions as two people who um, aren't like definitively a man and a woman shouldn't be able to get married just the same as a man and a woman can, and someone who. Um, seeks to have a deeper relationship with nature, shouldn't be able to cultivate their own mushrooms at their house. Well, I hope that gives you something to think about, and or, or not. Um, I enjoy knowing that people are listening, and if you have any questions or topics, or if you want to be on the show, uh, we can probably make that happen really easily. So get in touch with me. You could do that at facebook.com slash thepsychedologist. Check it out in the show notes for spelling. Uh, my name is Leah. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks for all the people that make this podcast possible. Stay classy. Stay groovy. I should have my own. Yeah. Please forget that I ever said stay classy. I don't want to appropriate that from um, Ron Burgundy. Why don't you write in and let me know what I should say at the end of each episode? Yeah. Stay psychedelic for now. Thanks.